he stuffed the black bouquet under his tunic. Big as it was, it rode uncomfortably there, but he needed both hands. Though someone had once told him an injured person shouldn't be moved any more than necessary, he couldn't leave the ranger there. He had to take her someplace where she could be helped. He wrapped her in her cloak in what he recognized was a rather pitiable attempt to disguise the nature of the peculiar burden he proposed to carry through the streets. He tugged his hood as far forward as it would go to shadow his features. Then he picked her up, carried her down the stairs, and out of the tower. He was fit, and she was slender, but the past couple days had been strenuous, and his arms, in fact, soon started to ache. He was pondering in advisability of draping her over his shoulder when someone whistled in the darkness up ahead. A moment later, a similar series of shrill notes warbled from behind. Aaron couldn't understand the signals. As far as he knew, no outsider could, but he recognized the distinctive signature of whistlers calling to one another. First one trilled again. It sounded closer. The gang member was evidently heading down the street. Aaron could have dashed for the mouth of an alleyway, but not quickly enough, not encumbered with the ranger. He considered dumping her, but even if no one molested her, there was no guarantee that anybody would help her either, and he simply couldn't bring himself to do it. He could, he could also try relying on his cow to conceal his identity, but he doubted it would do the job, not if the whistler was actually hunting him and passed close by. That meant his best option was to hide. He carried the scout into a shadowy doorway and hunkered down. He drew a throwing knife in case he did have to fight and stayed motionless thereafter. A pair of bravos, both human, came into view. The clean-shaven one swaggered and sneered as Aaron assumed bullies the world over were won't want to do. One with the long, drooped mustache looked bored. They glanced this way and that, plainly searching for someone or something. The man with the mustache peered straight at Aaron, but then turned indifferently away. The fugitive slumped with relief, and the ranger twitched and groaned. He frantically tried to clap his hand over her mouth. It took him a second to find it inside the muffling cloak. Meanwhile, he, wasted, he, he waited to see if the whistlers had heard her. No, evidently not for they wandered on down the street. Once they were gone and his nerves left off dangling, he, he checked in on the, on the guide. Check, dangling, he checked on the guide. She was still unconscious. She had moaned in her sleep, if sleep was the proper word for her condition. You're not too much trouble, he told her. I learned every bit of your stinking, no, I, I earned every bit of your stinking gold. He wrapped her up again and carried her onward. The priest of Ilmatar maintained a house of healing on the thoroughfare called the Rolling Shields. Someone had painted the god's emblem, a pair of white hands bound with red rope, on the door, where the lamplight illuminated it. A scarlet bell pull hung beside the sigil, but with his hands full, Aaron found it easier 
to easier simply to kick the panel until the stock young acolyte with blood-stained sle sleeves opened it. The smells of astringent soap, incense, and sickness drifted out from inside. I have an injured woman here, Aaron said. I'll pay for a private room and the best care you can give her. Everyone receives the best care we can give, no matter the size of the donation, the novice said stiffly. Still, he led Aaron past the public wards with their double rows of cots to a chamber with a single bed in it. Aaron set the scout down, and the acolyte disappeared. A senior, a senior priest, scrawny, pale, and grizzled, appeared a minute later. He gave Aaron a curt nod, then proceeded to examine his patient. Eventually, he rested his fingertips against her head and murmured an incantation. Pale light shone around them both, as if they were celestial beings possessed of halos. Bone clicked inside the guide's body. Aaron assumed it was knitting itself back together. But even so, the noise set his teeth on edge. How is, is she? he asked. She was gravely injured, said the priest, but she'll mend. Quickly, I imagine, since you used a spell on her. I'll be using more, but even so, it may be tomorrow or even the next day before she regains consciousness. Piss and dang, Aaron muttered. He couldn't wait that long to set about the task of freeing his father, which meant he was likely going to have to proceed without the benefit of whatever information the ranger could give him. Oh well, he doubted she actually had anything critical to say. He produced a handful of her gold. Take good care of her, Aaron told the priest. And please, don't tell anyone she's here. There are people who want to hurt her. That last could well be true if the Red Axes knew she'd been poking around and had decided they didn't like it. What about you? He, the priest asked. You're bruised and battered. You look like you could use a Karajian's attention yourself. A Tarudian's attention yourself. It occurred to Aaron that he ought to conserve his coin, but he decided to the abyss with it. He definitely could use some relief for his aches and pains and a safe, well, as safe as anywhere in Oval, refuge in which to rest. He scooped out more coin. You're right, he said. In fact, I'd like to stay for a while myself. You can drag a cot or pallet in here, and if you can, lay hands on a fresh shirt and tunic. I'll be grateful for those as well. Kesk disliked being awakened, no, being awake before mid-afternoon. He disliked the Slurvin's sword, too, even though the food was good and the decor. An, an eclectic collection of weapons, suits of armor, and the skulls and preserved carcasses of ferocious beast was to his taste. The problem with the, the dimming club, club was the gauzy winged sprites flittering about to maintain order. It rankled that the tiny fae, by wielding the slender wands with which the proprietor had equipped them, could paralyze even a tannerope with a single burst of magic. So all in all, Kesk was in the foul mood which soared still further when Aaron sat down opposite him. 
He quivered with the urge to leap up and swing his axe. The sprites would never stop him in time, but unfortunately such a tactic was unlikely to gain him the book, so he controlled himself. You're late, he growled. I had to look the place over, Aaron said. Make sure you came alone. From his calm demeanor, no one would have guessed he feared for his father's life, but Kess thought that was a bluff and that the facade would crack soon enough. I did, as the urchin you, you sent told me to do, said the tanner. Where's the box? The black bouquet, you mean? Kess sighed and said, so you got it open. Yes, and now I'm ready to sell it. I was thinking Emery's Skeltahar might be interested. He said he has enough coin to pay a fair price, and he's so well established that he's one of the few people who doesn't need to fear you. Half of your operations would fall apart if he wasn't involved. Denied the satisfaction of an axe stroke, Kesk rep reposted with mockery of his own. Let's not be hasty. Skeltahar can't give you your father back. Only I can do that, and I will, if we can come to an arrangement. For now, here's a little bit of him, as a show of good faith. He tossed a small bundle onto the tabletop. Go on, look at it. His hands trembled almost imperceptibly. Aaron unrolled the bloody rag to reveal the severed finger inside. Your piece, you piece of filth. What did you think we were going to do to him, Kess replied, after you betrayed me? He had no part in it. I couldn't be sure of that until we questioned him. Anyway, I need a stick to beat I need a stick to beat you with, and luckily him. He's it. Really, a chopper a chopped finger is the least of it. We've kept him screaming ever since we caught him. Nobody in the house can get any sleep. We're going to, we're going to go right on or torturing him too, and snipping pieces off until you hand over the book. Aaron sat silently for a few heartbeats and said, I have to get something out of this. You get Nikos back. Yes, and that's as it must be. I love him, but he's old and sick. He might not survive much longer in any case. I've got my whole life in front of me, and if I can live it as a rich man, I'm going to let the chance slip. I'm not not going to let the chance slip away. Back in the Watergate, we agreed on a new price. Back in the Watergate, I didn't have Nikos. I'm telling you, he's not enough. It irked Kest even to give the appearance of yielding, but he felt, all things considered, further resistance was a waste of time and effort. Alright, damn you. You'll get the coin, and poor old Papa too. The peace then, and peace then after. Give me your vow that you and the Red Axes won't hold a grudge. I swear by, by the who, who needs. I swear by he who never sleeps. Kess said with a sneer, and the Horde leader that we won't hold this against you. But you'll run a foul on of us again, and probably sooner rather than later. When that happens, I'll have your skull to make me a goblet. We'll see. So we will. Bring the book to my house. You have until sunset, and Aaron snorted and said, You think I'm stupid enough to walk into the dragon's cave? Call me timid, but I have a hunch I wouldn't come out again. Come midnight, put my father and the coin on board that pleasure barge of yours. 
roll out under the central span of the arch of gargoyles and drop anchor. If I see any of your henchmen on the bridge, or any bows, slings, or javelins on the boat, then you won't see me. Agreed. Then we're done, Aaron said as he rose. Cask leered and said, You're forgetting the finger. Don't you want it? If not, maybe I'll have the cook fry it up. The human gave him a level stare, then, plainly thinking better of whatever it was he wanted to do or say, he turned away in a swirl of gray cape. Kesk watched, interested, to see how Aaron would exit. Obviously, the thief had chosen the dining club because there was so many ways in and out. It was accessible through the underways, at street level, and by a rain span. It would be hard for even the most determined gang to lay a trap along every route. Kesk hadn't tried. The trap, such as it was, was sitting just a few tables away, sipping tea. Her cow pulled up to cover her shaved scalp. Kesk didn't know what to make of Dark Sister Cephas. He certainly didn't trust her any more than he would have trusted anyone who professed allegiance to Shar. Humans and dwarves called their own, called his own gods and deities of the orc pantheon evil, but in fact they were simply powers who granted their worshippers strength, plunder, and pleasure, the things every sensible person wanted. In contrast, the Lady of Loss, from what the Tanarup vaguely understood, sought the destruction of the entire world, her own followers included. Only a lunatic would pledge himself to a patron such as that. Still, Sephiroth plainly did have useful talents, exactly as she claimed, and just as importantly, Aaron had no idea who she was. With luck, she could deal with him, Cask would deal with her, and he could acquire the fortune of gems, if it even existed, either by trading honestly or cheating, cheating most likely. If he murdered the monastic, he could follow through on his deal with his original partner and make that much more coin. Maybe even one day control and all, control all the illegal activity in Weevil, entirely unhindered by the Greyblades, assuming he could trust the little weasel that far. When he thought about it that way, it seemed as if a splendid future lay in store but the complexity of the current situation hurt him. It almost made him wish he told Aaron the truth from the start. Maybe if he had, the job would be over already. The funny thing was, he wasn't even sure why he'd withheld so much information. To avoid scaring Aaron off or shave his feet, possibly that was what he told himself, but he suspected he'd really, he, he really done, done it out of spite simply because he didn't like the human. Also, the impulse had worked against him. But, in general, it was his determination never to forget a slight or injury, to do his foes a bad turn at every opportunity, which had made him the most powerful chieftain in Weeble, Weeble's underworld. So he supposed it was an unacceptable trade-off. Aaron climbed the stairs to the second floor. Unless he was planning to double back down again, he was headed for the rain span. Sephiroth took a final sip of tea 
laid a silver piece on her table and rose to follow. Sephiroth knew any number of tricks for telling a man without being spotted. More valuable than any technique, however, was the instinct that warned her when her quarry was going to look around. When Aaron reached the door, she sensed it was about to happen. Fortunately, the upper stories of Slurvain's sword, like the ground floor, was crammed with decorations selected to please the sensibilities of warriors, adventurers, and those who enjoyed imagining themselves in such roles. She sidestepped behind a stuffed body of Periton. The trophy was a fine specimen. It, its aquiline body, more than eight feet long, and the antlers curb, for, curving forward from its purple stag-like head, sprouted eight points each. It smelled faintly of some bitter substance of ta taxidermist. No, of some bitter substance the taxidermist had used to preserve it. One of the sprites, a blue-skinned grig with the antennae and long, folded legs of a cricket, swooped in front of her and hovered. Eventually, it had noticed her ducking into hiding, while she, intent on Aaron, had missed spotted him, spotting him. It pointed its ruined, curved wooden wand at her face. She was reasonably certain she could swat it out of the air before it could speak the word that triggered the weapon, the hurt, perhaps not without attracting the hostile attention of its fellows. I'm not going to cause any trouble in here, she said, keeping her voice low. What happens outside is not no concern of yours. The Grig regarded her for another moment and gave a curt nod and flew away. In other places, the Fae had a reputation for fighting evil. Had had a reputation for fighting evil, but it seems that in Weevil, even they thought twice about meddling in affairs that were none of their business. Sephiroth stepped from behind the periton. Aaron was gone through the door, presumably. Though, if he was as wily as his reputation indicated, maybe not. She strode to it and cracked it open. It was all right. There he was, moving down the rain span. It wasn't necessary, necessarily the escape route Sephiroth would have chosen. If someone was chasing you, you could only flee in one direction. But by the same token, you can only had you only had to keep an eye out for foes straight ahead or directly behind, which meant Sephiroth couldn't afford to look like an enemy. She let him get a few paces further ahead then ambled out onto the, into the sunlight, gawking like a rustic like a rustic to whom the towers and elevated pathways were a marvel. At best, the pretense would fool Aaron for a little while. If he kept a sharp eye out, start no if he kept a sharp eye out, started and stopped, and doubled back as she expected him to, he was bound to mark her eventually. Her objective was to uh, to close to, to close the striking range before that happened, then drop him. He paused, as if to admire the view. She knew it would seem too much of a coincidence if she abruptly did the same, so she kept on strolling. Once she was close enough, her nerves fairly sang with the urge to strike him. Alas, other people were nearby, 
in all likelihood it would be easy enough to kill him if they were so foolish as to intervene. But it was more sensible to be patient and wait till she and her prey were alone. She passed on by. At the end of the bridge, steps twisted up and down around and outside of a spire built of crumbling brick, and the door led into the interior. She had no into the interior. She had no way to predict which way Aaron would choose and therefore climb to the start of another rickety rain span a story higher. At least from that vantage point she could count on seeing where he went. As he heard the tower she re as he neared the tower she reflected that she could spin a chakram down and hit him. She had a perfect shot and the folk with whom they'd shared the bridge were entering Charvin's sword. The only thing that deterred her was that the razor's edge rings were made of maiming and killing, not simply stunning a man helpless. Despite her skill, she might conceivably hurt Aaron so severely that he wouldn't be able to reveal the location of the book. A spell, however, was a different matter. She plucked a pinch of sand from her pocket, tossed it into the air, and murmured the charm that would put a victim or even several to sleep. The dimness seethed about her, the shadow weave manifesting itself even in the midst of the bright sunlight. Power whispered, but Aaron kept right on walking. He had a strong spirit or was merely lucky, for somehow he'd resisted the spell probably without ever even realizing he was under magical attack. Well, she'd get him next time. When he reached the tower, she started down around the outside, in a moment disappearing around the curve. He started down around the outside, in a moment disappearing around the curve of the rounded wall. As she headed after him, she saw a shaggy-headed ruffian skulk from the dining dining club. She assumed it was her own shadow. Kesk lacked subtlety, but had sense enough to try to ensure that she wouldn't get hold of the black bouquet and vanish. The red axe or whistler or member of some other gang beholden to the Tannerock was of no importance at the moment. Sephiris would kill or evade him when the time came. She had to keep up with Aaron, and she hurried down the side of the tower, knowing that until he came into view below her, he couldn't see her either. The problem was that he never did appear, not on the steps or on the ground underneath either, and by the time Sephiris reached the second story, she realized what was wrong. He had noticed her magic after all, and was trying to shake her off his, his tail, her trail. Aldo. Had he sprinted to the ground and concealed himself? It was impossible, but she couldn't, but she hadn't heard his running footsteps slapping on the steps. It seemed more likely that he'd slipped through one of the doors leading into the tower. He did, she did the same and found herself on a landing lined with doors, interior staircases zigzagged up and down which way. She was grimly aware that he could have gone anywhere, but a sorcer sorceress learned to heed her intuition and, 
and hers told her he'd scurried upward, doubling back to the rain span. She dashed in that direction. She threw open the door that led to the bridge she crossed a minute before. Kesk Minions was in the middle of it. Did you see where Aaron went? She snapped. He gaped at her, eventually amazed that she'd picked up on who he was and manifestedly useless. She raced on up the inside of the tower and plunged through the exit of the higher, higher of the two rain spans. Aaron saw Randell was scurrying along it. When he heard the door bang against the wall, he turned, saw her, and likewise looked surprised. In his case, surprised that she was still on his track and catching up so quickly. He shouldn't have been. No, he, she, no, he shouldn't have been. Her, tra no, her training enabled her to run faster than any common thief. Nobody else was on the bridge to deter her from attacking. She charged, and Aaron threw a dagger at her. It flew straight and true and without breaking stride. She batted it out of the air. The thief hurled a second knife. She ducked it. He spun, ran, reached the end of the rain span, and sprinted on down the long axis of clay-tiled gavel and valley roof, which the builders had made flat to create a narrow walkway. At the far end was the top of a spire staircase that presumably corkscrewed all the way down to the ground. <laughs>